0: All right. We were unfortunately unable to get the audio to work for Sunday School on Sunday with the live stream on YouTube. The mixer was having some kind of problem and the audio did not come through. And so I'm going to try to give us sort of the poor man's version of Sunday School from Sunday. We are in Daniel chapter 8. I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse as I read through the chapter and uh, discuss it, take it as we go. 27 verses. This is this is the more remote territory of Daniel. Daniel 8 and Daniel 10 and 11 are probably the least known parts of the book of Daniel. Uh, and I just have to mention, I took a speech class in college, my first semester of college, and my I think it was my second speech for a grade, uh, like a five-minute speech or something, was... Uh, we, we got a lot of freedom on what we could speak on. We had certain parameters, certain certain basic things you had to follow. But once you followed those basic parameters, you could talk about almost anything you wanted to. And w- although I would, if I could go back, I, I'm sure I would have chosen a different subject. I did choose Daniel 8, this chapter, as the theme for my message to uh, my uh, college class back in probably October of 2005. And... um If I would have gone back, I would probably have spoken on the resurrection of Jesus rather than on this, since uh, most of the people in my class were not Christians. I was trying to show the Bible has prediction, prophecy, and fulfillment, uh, that it can predict the future and and show fulfillment. And certainly Daniel 8 is an example of that. But I kind of wish I would have stuck with the resurrection itself, keep a little more central to the gospel. But that being said, Daniel 8 is still an important uh, passage. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is God's word, Daniel 8.1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Let's stop here. This happens in the third year third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is the guy who died during the party with the words, with the detached hand writing on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, you've been weighed the balance and found wanting. That man died. Belshazzar, his last year of reign was in Daniel 5. But then we're told in Daniel 7, That the dream, the vision he receives there took place in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So it took place more than a decade earlier before chapter 5. And then Daniel 8 is the third year of this king's reign. So about two years after the vision of Daniel chapter 7 is when this took place. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I saw in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision... And I was at Ulai, at the Ulai Canal. So Daniel is, I believe, over 100, maybe 200 miles east of Babylon when this takes place. Although it is not inconceivable that Daniel traveled to these cities doing his work for the government, most people think, and I think this is right, he is not actually physically here. He is simply in Susa, the citadel, through a vision. He is there through a vision. And what does he see? Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. What is this? Do you remember in Daniel 7? Okay, I don't want to get us lost here. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are the first and last chapters of Daniel written in not Hebrew, but in Aramaic. One of the few sections of the Bible in the Old Testament written in Aramaic. Daniels 2 through 7. 2 and 7, the beginning and end of the Aramaic section, parallel each other because they both talk about these coming four kingdoms and the coming of the Messiah. Nebuchadnezzar has the statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron mixed with clay. Then in Daniel, that's in Daniel 2. In Daniel 7, you have four beasts. You have a beast like a lion. You have a beast like a bear raised on one side. You have a beast like a leopard with four wings and a beast with ten horns. The... The second beast is the bear, which I think, my opinion, corresponds with the silver section of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. The bear is raised on one side, one side of the bear is more prominent than the other. Well, in Daniel 8, I think the ram being described is the same as the bear from Daniel's dream and vision in, in chapter 7. And instead of having the bear raised on one side, you have a ram with two horns that are also uneven, one is higher than the other, and the higher one comes up later. What does that represent? But we will find out, I'll read it now, verse 20 tells us, no mistake about it, what this is about. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. In other words, the Medes, Although the Median Empire was in some senses larger than the Persian Empire. When the Persian Empire came later, the, the horn that rises later, it took over. And Persian Empire became stronger and more powerful than the Median Empire. So, just like it was a bear raised on one side, the Persian side being raised, so now it's a ram with two horns. the The higher horn, the Persian Empire, coming up later and, and having dominion. So, this ram represents the Medio Persian Empire. Uh, I'm going to risk putting you to sleep on this, but this is a good evidence that the Bible sees the Median Empire and the Persian Empire as a single entity, because This ram, this single animal with two horns, represents the combined Medo-Persian empire, which I think gives strong credence to the idea that the silver empire in Daniel 2 is the Medo-Persian empire, and that the second beast, the bear, in Daniel 7, is also the Medo-Persian empire, that the two kingdoms are combined in one empire. But now this ram is in trouble. Because he's about to see something. Verse 4, I saw the ram, this is the Medo-Persian Empire, this is verse 4 of Daniel 8. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So you remember, you have in the Middle Eastern area, really stretching at the extremes from, say, Greece all the way to Italy. Uh, excuse me, not not Italy, Greece all the way to India, you have this massive area of the world, and that is what was being fought over so much of the time. And you have here the Medo-Persian Empire having complete dominance. No one can stop them, at least that's the way it is for a temporary period of time. Verse 5, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now get this picture. The ram with two horns is Medo-Persia. No one can conquer Medo-Persia. Until a male goat comes from the west so quickly his feet are not touching the ground, you know, I heard someone say it's like those old cartoons when they run, their feet scram, scramble and they, they don't even touch the ground sometimes when they're running. Uh, it's this idea of cr- tremendous speed. This new empire is what empire led by whom? Well, we could give you our guess, which is fine, there's times where you just have to guess, but the text actually tells us later, verse 21, don't you love it when the when the bible gives you the explicit meaning of a text verse 21 and the goat so who is this male goat the goat is the king of greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king so the 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 ram is the king of greece it really represents greece and the horn the prominent horn growing up on the head of this goat is the first king of greece Well, you know who that is? That's Alexander the Great. No question about it, we know who this is. Alexander the Great took over the Greek empire, and he ran the thing around from one place to another and accomplished so much in an incredibly short period of time. It was as if his feet were not touching the ground. This, by the way, parallels an animal from Daniel chapter 7. The one that comes after the bear raised on one side which represents Medo-Persia, comes what? The leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. This is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, or Greece. The, the leopard is a fast, ferocious animal. Four wings of a bird on its back represents even more its speed and its ability to go anywhere at any moment. Well, Alexander the Great was just that. Now, let me pause here. Maybe you're thinking about turning this off. You're going, okay, th- I didn't I didn't really want a uh, high school or college history lesson about uh, the ancient history of the world uh, before the Roman Empire. I don't really need that right now. Let, let me say a couple things to you if you're a Christian listener. Number one, if you and I are Christians, we believe God's word is from God himself, and we believe, 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we believe all scripture is profitable, including the historical section of Daniel chapter 8, and especially chapters 10 through 11. But, number two, in order to rightly apply the Bible, and that's a good thing, we should want to apply the Bible to our lives. Absolutely. you got the you got uh, some of study Bibles that will focus on life application, and I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with that. Here's what I want to say first, though. There is a danger that we read the Bible in such a me-first, me-centered way that if we don't immediately see a connection between the text we're looking at and my Tuesday afternoon, then we think that... The text is basically pointless or useless or not worth our time, not worth devoting mental energy and effort to. I want to rebuke that. I want to say that is not true. We need to understand what the text means uh, objectively, what it meant when it was first written, what it meant to its original audience, Daniel and his first listeners. What did it mean to them? And only then can we move from that time period to our time period and make application of our text. And uh, there are there are. there are real applications that we will try to make in a, in a few moments here. So let me get back to this prominent horn on the male goat, moving quickly across the ground. This is from Kevin DeYoung. Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle as a boy. Do you remember this? Aristotle uh, tutored Plato as a boy. Uh, Alexander then uh, succeeded his father at age 20. He became a general at age 21. He conquered the known world by age 26. Now just stop for a second. 20 took over for his father. 21 became a general. At age 26, in just about five or six years, he had conquered the entire known world for the time. The legend has it that he wept because he had no more kingdoms to conquer. And then he died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon at age 32, in the year 323. I'm not quite 35 years old. He was 32 years old, and he died. Uh, and he had already conquered all this world, and he he was gone. So uh, when it says that the feet were not touching the ground, you get the sense of the incredible speed and ferocity with which he ruled and reigned, and also you get a sense of how temporary and fleeting it was. Uh, We're told in verse 22, As for the horn that was broken, that's Alexander dying in his prime in the year 323 B.C. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. In other words, we're told that Greece is going to rise up with its first king. That king is going to be broken off in his prime, and then from his kingdom, it will be divided into four kingdoms. Well, that is precisely and exactly what did end up happening to the kingdom of Alexander the Great. After his death, the kingdom was split into four different parts. If I can find here the names of them. I may not be able to find them right now. I had, them, I had the thing highlighted. Here we go. To the south, you had Ptolemy First, Soter means, I think, savior. Uh, He took over Egypt upon Alexander's death. This is one of his generals. Number two, to the east, you had Seleucus I, Nicator, who took control uh, from Asia Minor through Babylon, extending into Persia in 312 BC. He also founded the Seleucid, Seleucid Empire, which is important. Number three, to the west, Cassander, son of the general Antipater, gained undisputed control over Greece and Macedonia in 301 BC. And number four, to the north, after the Battle of Ipsus. Lysimachus, I think this is how you say it, came to rule uh, Thrace, Lydia, Ionia, Phrygia, and the north coast of Asia Minor in 301 BC. So, in other words, Daniel predicts, and that's by the way from Joe Sprinkle's excellent commentary on Daniel uh, that you can see here. So, what you find is uh, Daniel accurately presents, God actually predicts, that Greece is going to split into four kingdoms after that first king dies, which is going to be Alexander the Great. Let's keep going here. Back to verse eight. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That's Alexander dying in his in his strength in his prime, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That's amazingly. This I presented this in my in my speech class in college. I was at um, what is now the UNG Dahlonega Oconee campus at the time, and I had maybe twenty five mostly non-Christian students in the room. I I try to emphasize here, scripture predicts not only the first king of Greece dying in his prime, but that his kingdom will be split into four parts uh, later on after his death. Verse nine, out of one of them, so out of one of the four horns, out of one of the four parts of the Greek empire, we're gonna find out later, it's the Seleucid, it's the Seleucid, Seleucid empire. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious, land now you may remember the phrase the, a little horn because in chapter seven we are told that a little horn is going to arrive chapter seven verse eight another horn, a little horn came and had eyes like a man it spoke great things. the horn was speaking great words and was killed by the son of man essentially when he comes. Uh, and it speaks of this person. Well that that's the antichrist in chapter 7. The little horn is the antichrist. In chapter 8 we've got another little horn, but we do not believe this is the antichrist. Because the, just follow me here don't don't uh, let your mind wander. This is I know complicated. The little horn in Daniel 7 grows out of the fourth beast, which we believe and Joe Sprinkle and Tom Schreiner and others basically say something along the lines of the fourth beast in his vision in Rome in 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 uh, Daniel 7 is hyphenated Rome and beyond. Rome and beyond. And the, four, the the little horn in Daniel 7 comes out of Rome and beyond. That is the Antichrist who is judged being destroyed at the return of Christ, the Son of Man, in Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, the little horn does not come out of the fourth beast. This little horn comes out of the third beast, the leopard, Alexander the Great's kingdom. Why would they both be called little horn? Doesn't that doesn't that inherently make it confusing? They sound very similar. Even the descriptions of these two little horns sound very similar. They're both arrogant. They both hate God and his people. They both try to persecute God's people. Well, the little horn in Daniel 8 is certainly, and and this is almost unanimously agreed upon by conservative and even liberal critical scholars, who I don't really, frankly, care that much what they think. But uh, conservative scholars, I love because they believe the Bible. Liberal scholars don't even believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. But all scholars basically agree that the little horn in Daniel 8 is King Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. King Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And this man rose to power in the 160s BC. He did his worst work between 167 and 164 BC during about a three to three and a half year reign of terror in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem. And we're actually told that he's going to move towards the glorious land in verse 9. The glorious land is the promised land. Now, just footnote here. Daniel is writing this in the 500s BC. Israel has been kicked out of their land, and they are living, most of them, in the Babylonian area, in, in, in the pagan world. Daniel is seeing a vision that's going to take place. King Antiochus rising up about, let's see, four, three, two, one. About 400 years later, 350 years later, he's seeing this vision coming to pass. And uh, what's interesting is the people are back in the land, and that is where they're going to experience this persecution. Verse 10, this little horn, oh, I, I must also say, this is important, King Antiochus IV Epiphanes, his name Epiphanes, he made up for himself, he even printed it on coins. He printed the word Antiochus, and it would say Theos Epiphanes, God, Theos, where we get theology, Theos is the Greek word for God, Theos Epiphanes. God manifest. So he named himself God manifest. And some other people, some smart Alex, uh, said back to him, You're not Epiphanes, you're Epimenes. You're, you're not God manifest, you're a madman. Uh, they switched the Greek word by a, just maybe a letter or so and changed the meaning to madman because that's what he certainly looked like. But he, this man who thought he was a God, he is called a little horn because he is a foreshadowing, he is a type a prototype of the final Antichrist figure. And there are many Antichrists. Remember 1 John 2.18. We know Antichrist is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come into the world. Anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an Antichrist. So you have here an Antichrist figure in King Antiochus, and he foreshadows the final Antichrist uh, who is still to come. Verse 10. This little horn, King Antiochus, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. This may influence how we interpret Revelation twelve four about the dragon sweeping a third of the stars to the ground with his tail. But it sounds as though his battle not just takes place on earth, it also influences heavenly realities. Verse 10, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Most people think the prince of the host is referring to God. And he tried to make himself equal with God. You can see this in the way pagan kings act like in Isaiah 14, raising the throne to the height of heaven. So he became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So the prince of the host, it says his regular burnt offering was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. If you're not familiar with some of this stuff in the Old Testament, there was a regular burnt offering that took place every morning and every evening, every day of the year. An animal would be sacrificed in the morning and evening. And this was this is a way to sort of maintain uh, the Lord's uh, uh, pleasure with his people uh, while he dwelt there in their camp to maintain uh, uh, purity in the camp. These burnt offerings are taken away. This is a drastic thing for a Jewish person. Even when Jews were starving in a a famine, uh, they tried to preserve animals for that daily sacrifice and they would not want to eat them. And it wasn't until things were absolutely dire that they would begin to even uh, not sacrifice that animal. That happened when Rome surrounded Jerusalem in the 60s A.D. So the regular burnt offering is taken away. The sanctuary, God's sanctuary, is overthrown. The temple is going to be uh, defiled and treated horrifically by this king Antiochus. Verse 12, and a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So, because of transgression, uh, people say, "Who's trans- is, this, is this the transgression of the pagan king or the people of God? I'm not sure, honestly. Certainly, they both transgressed, but uh, transgression occurs, truth is thrown to the ground. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. Just pause there. You have a holy one talking to a holy one, trying to figure out exactly the details of what's going on. These are angels speaking one to another, trying to better understand what this prophecy, this vision is predicting. Angels, is important to know, are not omniscient. Angels do not have all knowledge. I think in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told this speaks about the gospel being predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and we're told the the things that they speak of, the, the good news that was preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven are things into which even angels long to look into. So even angels want to better understand the gospel truths and want to better understand these prophecies that are taking place. So one angel says to another, verse 13, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? How long is this going to happen when the burnt offering is cut off and the people are horrifically persecuted? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long is this horrific time going to last? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So we're told that this this horrific time from this pagan king, this horn, is going to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, I am no Hebrew scholar. This is, by the way, this chapter, we're back to Hebrew in the book of Daniel. So seven was the last Aramaic chapter. We're back in Hebrew for the rest of Daniel. The Hebrew words here for, it really just says 2,300, and then it says evenings, then it says mornings. And it's not clear whether the 2,300 refer to a combination of evenings and mornings, which would really be the number, what is that, 1,150 would be half of that number, or if it's referring to actually 2,300 days. If it's 2,300 days, we're talking closer to a seven-year period. If we're talking uh, 1,150 days, we're talking closer to a three and a half year period. I think the three and a half year period is more likely, and in other words, this intense persecution of the sanctuary being trampled, uh, the the word of God being thrown down, uh, pagans treating the place contemptuously, is going to last for about three hundred. Excuse me, for about three and a half years. Mention. I'll mention this more uh, when we get to chapter eleven, but the end of this period and the restoring to the rightful state of the temple is Hanukkah. That's the the, the, the December feast of Hanukkah that, the, that uh, Jews uh, commemorate to this very day and that Jesus himself uh, was a part of a, a Hanukkah feast. It's called a feast of dedication in John chapter 10, especially verses 22 and 36, shed a little bit of light on that. So I think this is 167 BC to 164 BC when Antiochus reigns and horribly mistreats the people of God. Now let me let me just say here. Again, I want to talk more about this in Daniel 11 in the future. What happens here is described most vividly in the first two chapters of the book of 1 Maccabees. Now, if uh I think I've got my Catholic Bible. I've got a few different Catholic Bibles. Here we go. Here we go. Got it right here. So I've got the uh, the NRS I just knocked over several different books. That's wonderful. So I've got here the NRSV uh, College Edition here. Of the uh, you can see here it says uh, it's uh, with apocrypha. This is basically uh, the the basically a Catholic Bible. Um, and uh, in this Bible you're going to have the books of First and Second Maccabees. Uh, I believe they're between the Old and New Testaments here. And um, what you will find is that 1st and 2nd Maccabees are in the Catholic Bible. They're not in the Protestant Bible for good reason. And I could talk about why later. But the 1st cha- Maccabees is a generally reliable history of what happened in the 160s and around that time, B.C. And uh, I've certainly read 1st Maccabees more than once. Uh, I, I believe I've read it a couple times. That book... Um, Describes the first two chapters describe what happens when Antiochus shows up in vivid detail. We'll talk more about that in first, um, in Daniel 11. I will just say that, um, the Maccabee books and the Apocryphal books were never included in the Jewish canon of Scripture. And so let us be aware of that. The New Testament authors never quote the Catholic Apocrypha a single time. Uh, they certainly never quote any Apocryphal books as Scripture, but they quote the Old Testament books and the Jewish canon, the Hebrew canon, uh, hundreds of times, and they refer to them repeatedly as the writings and the Scriptures. So the New Testament authors, along with Jesus and the, the Hebrew canon, never include First Maccabees in it. So it is not a scriptural book. It wasn't until... 1546 that the Catholic Church officially included the apocryphal books like Tobith and uh, Judith and 1st uh, and 2nd Maccabees and uh, the Wisdom of Solomon and all these books into their Old Testament. They only did that much later, 1546, in response to the Reformation uh, in the 1500s. But uh, be that as it may, I do not think 1st Maccabees is inspired scripture, but I do think it's generally accurate history. And Josephus also refers to this time period some in his works. So the question is how long, they say three and a half years is probably the answer. 2,300 evenings and mornings, evening and morning sacrifices. Verse 15, Second half of the book gives a little bit more detail. We're going to run through the same material again, but quicker, but it's going to give a little bit more specific detail. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So Daniel wants to, he he, he sees the vision, but he, he doesn't fully understand it. He seeks to understand it. Let me just say, the first time we read a biblical passage, it is unlikely that we will fully understand it right away. Fully understand it, we'll probably never fully understand much of, much of it. We're dealing with infinities and immensities in the Bible, but we can at least understand them a little bit and, and understand a little bit more next time. If Daniel needed help to understand his vision, we certainly need help to understand Daniel's vision. So he looks at one with the appearance of a man. Verse 16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So a heavenly voice, either another angel or God's, speaks to Gabriel and says, please let this man understand the vision. This Gabriel who's about to speak appears a couple of times in Daniel. Certainly this is the same Gabriel who appears to Mary in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. It is certainly, I am sure, the same angel. Verse 17. So he, Gabriel, came near to where I stood, came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Gabriel must, uh, must sort of not, I don't know if he gets used to this reaction. He shows up to Mary, and Mary is terrified, right? And the, uh, Mary, uh, blessed are you among women. She said, who are you? Well, do not be afraid. Well, here, Daniel falls on his face as well when he sees Gabriel. And he said to me, understand, O son of the man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep. With my face on the ground, my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, if you're like me, you read the Bible, and when you hear the appointed time of the end, the end time, the last time, that kind of language, we tend to think the end time is the time of the end. It's the last times, it's the end times. Well, there's different end times this end times is not the final return of Christ. This is the this is a particular moment of an end, the end of the the indignation, at the latter end of the indignation. This is referring to the time when God, excuse me, when when uh, the, this judgment is poured out on Israel in the 160s, and that time comes to an end at Hanukkah, at 164 BC, uh, during the Maccabean revolt. So this is not the end end times. This is the end of this particular moment of persecution by King Antiochus. That comes to an end after the 2300 evenings, mornings. This comes uh, to an end uh, in 164 BC at what we now call Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication, the time of dedication of the temple. Verse 20, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face—here's Antiochus again—a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Now, you, you notice here, verse twenty-two to twenty-three jumps forward a significant amount of time, well over a hundred years. It just—it just—it jumps from Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great in Greece. All the way to the Seleucid Empire, all the way down to one of the descendant kings, Antiochus IV. So centuries are just streaming past us in a very short time. We're now in the 160s BC. So this is a man of bold face, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. Verse 24 His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Uh, some people think this means Satan is behind him, empowering him. Uh, others think that it's God allowing him. Through his sovereignty, just like God allowed Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I have raised up for this very purpose that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It may be referring to God's power, allowing him to to rise up. Either way, it says, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So he is going to wreak havoc on the saints. He's going to persecute them and hurt them and kill many of them. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. So we're told in verse twelve, he throws truth to the ground. We're told that Antiochus burned copies of the Torah, and he would kill you if you had your own copy of the Torah. Uh, he would he would destroy you for the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. He would he would kill you if you had that. He'd burn copies of it. Well, here we're told he let deceit prosper under his hand. He's against the truth. He loves deceit and deception. In In his own mind, he shall become great. So yeah, in the world's eyes, he's not that memorable of a king. If it wasn't for the Bible, we would have largely forgotten about King Antiochus and his reign of terror in Jerusalem. Uh, But he becomes great in his own mind. He's incredibly arrogant. Without warning, he shall destroy many. Uh, I'm gonna get the details wrong, but we're told that he brought in an army of twenty something thousand and acted like he wasn't gonna do anything in Jerusalem. And then on a Sabbath day when the men felt like they could not fight, he then attacked them and killed many of them. It says, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's against God himself. He's gonna rise up against think of the Prince of Peace, right? The Prince of Princes. He's gonna, he's gonna rise up against God himself, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. It's important. This is the first time in this chapter anything about his fate has really become clear. Um, His death has not been referred to until this very moment. He shall be broken, but by no human hands. Now, how exactly King Antiochus died is not clear. There's multiple accounts. In fact, the book of 2 Maccabees, I believe in chapters 2 and 11, give two contradictory accounts of how he died. There there are multiple and contradictory accounts of how he died, but all the counts agree i believe in the fact that he died uh not by human intervention but by uh, some kind of a uh, natural cause in one case uh some kind of disease in his bowels that that was that had a terrible stench involved with it uh, his his intestines it was kind of like the way uh, herod dies in acts where he, he he was struck by an angel and he, he he was eaten by worms and died that that kind of violent vicious sort of death but it was by no human hands verse 26 The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So Daniel is sealing the scroll not because he's trying to make it a secret. That's not the goal here. He seals up the scroll in verse 26 because he wants to preserve the truth that is in it. That's what he's told to do. Now, let's move into more direct application here for these last uh, few minutes. Sinclair Ferguson and some others did a great job pointing this out. The little horn is clearly, in some sense, empowered by Satan. He's acting in a satanic way, and the same Satan who was behind the little horn, Antiochus IV, is the same Satan who will be behind the final little horn, the actual Antichrist, and he's also the same Satan who's behind all the lowercase a Antichrist that exists all throughout church history. Uh, 1 John, again, says many Antichrists have already come, First. John forces the, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work, I believe is what it says, um, etc. So here are some takeaways. If he worked the same way then, we can expect him to work the same way today, that he will also work in the future. And there are four things that this little horn, King Antiochus, does that we can learn from because it's the stuff that Satan always does. It's the stuff that Satan loves to do. It's the stuff that Satan consistently does. Four things. Number one, It's sacrifice, number two, temple, number three, truth, number four, saints. Number one, sacrifice. Satan attacks the same things the day that he attacked then. If you look at Daniel 8, verse 11, the little horn, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. So the regular burnt offering was taken away. Satan behind the little horn opposes what? The regular burnt offering. That's sacrifice, the sacrificial system. This system that God had put in place through Levitical law and through the Levitical priesthood to say, if you want to have access to me, if you want to have fellowship and communion with me, then you've got to be ceremonially pure. You've got to come into my presence with your sins having been washed away, wiped away, uh, taken away. And so th- the burnt offerings, the sacrificial system, the, the day of atonement, uh, all this was there to say someone needs to pay for your sin for you to stand righteous before God. And all these animals, of course, couldn't actually take away the blood. Uh, the, The blood of these animals could not take away sin, but they pointed forward to the one who could. So even though we don't have an animal sacrificial system today that Satan can oppose, certainly he opposes the doctrine of the cross. He hates the cross. What we call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal has to do with penalty. Substitution is someone standing in your place. And atonement, someone taking the wrath that you deserve. That doctrine is hated by Satan because that is the doctrine that, if believed, uh, grants us union and communion with God. It's also the reality of what Christ did that is central to the Christian faith that Satan opposes with all of his might. Number two, the little horn opposes the temple. It says uh, he. It says the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. In verse twenty, th- verse uh, thirteen, it says. The giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. So, Satan, if he has his way, tramples underfoot the sanctuary of God, the temple of God. Well, we don't have a physical earthly temple anymore, but we are part of his temple. So, individually, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Satan would love to persecute Christians, to kill and destroy Christians. But most most of all he would want us to sin in such a way that we would we would um, do things with our body that would be sinful like first Corinthians 6 says don't take your body which is a temple of the Holy Spirit united to Christ and unite it to a prostitute uh, those kinds of things so we, we need to do everything we can to keep God's temple pure to walk in holiness the pure and heart of the ones who will be blessed to see God and so we need to keep that in mind that the health and the uh, and the wholeness of the church he will want to persecute the church he will want to undermine the church. The number three thing he does, verse 12, and the host will be given over to it together in the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground. It will throw truth to the ground. Uh, we're actually told there's, that uh, King Antiochus burned copies of the Torah. As I mentioned, uh, he hated the truth. Well, Satan, who's behind him, always hates God's truth. He wants to burn God's word. And if it's not going to be literally burned, he wants it to collect dust on our shelves. He does not want us reading the word. He does not want us believing the word. He does not want us praying the word, singing the word, speaking the word. He does not want our conversations to be about the truth. He hates the truth. Uh, he, you know, the, the classic verse that, from Jesus speaking about the, the character of Satan, which I think we've, we've heard it before uh, perhaps many times, John chapter 8. This is what Jesus says about Satan. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. The NIV used to say, out of his own native language to speak lies, for he is a liar and the father of lies but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So Satan hates the truth. He wants to do everything he can to undermine the truth. He makes you want to say, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Would God really punish you for that? Is there really a hell? Is there really, uh, do do we really need a bloody sacrifice to be right with God? Surely that's not what a loving and good God would demand. He would just wipe it away. He doesn't need a sacrifice. He can do whatever he wants. Those are the kind of, kinds of things Satan does to attack the sacrifice, the temple, and the truth. Number four, he attacks. uh, Well, before I get to number four, let me also mention in verse 12, it says, and it will act and prosper. So there will be the illusion in the moment that Satan's people have the upper hand, that they've got the victory. They're the people, you you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? You want to be on the right side of history. Well, yeah, I want to be on the ultimately right side of history, not the temporary it seems hip and cool right now side of history, which is going to be gone and forgotten tomorrow. But number four, he also attacks the saints. Look at verse 24 of Daniel 8. His power, same guy, the king of bold face, King Antiochus, the little horn, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So he's going to do everything he can to literally destroy the saints. And he may destroy us physically with persecution or he may destroy us with um with deception and false doctrine. It's interesting. Why do we need to hear about this stuff? Well, God was loving Daniel and the saints of those days well enough to let them know ahead of time the kind of persecution and trouble that was coming into the world so that they would be ready and prepared for it. Scott told this uh, illustration when he was teaching on Sunday about a pastor who said he was walking down the hallway and his wife had apparently snuck into a room. Uh, and when he came by the door, she jumped out and yelled at him and he said to you about fell over. He was just terrified uh, You know, when she popped out of the door. He said, well, if, if as I came down the hallway, I saw her slip into the room to hide. He said, well, then I had different options in front of me. I could have walked down the hallway, and when she jumped out, I could have just had a completely bland expression, and she would have been like, why didn't that work? Or I could have snuck down the hallway myself and jumped around the corner ahead of her and scared her. Um, but when you know some trouble is coming, you can prepare for it. That's the point. Daniel eight is God loving His people well enough to say, "I know trouble is coming. It's part of my ordained sovereign plan, but I'm letting you know ahead of time so it doesn't catch you off guard." Well, very similarly in the Gospel of John, the Olivet Discourse on the Thursday night, uh, the the night of Jesus's betrayal, which we will be celebrating this Thursday, Monday, Thursday, the Commandment Thursday, as it is called in church on the church calendar, Jesus said this at the end of John fifteen, beginning of John sixteen. If the world hates you, know that it has ha- that it hated me before you. If you are of the world, the, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It, it, you know, if they, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Then he says this: the Helper will come. I will send to you from the Father and the Spirit. The, uh, from the Father, the Spirit of Truth. And then he says, 16, 1 I said. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Then he says, They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus says, Listen, the truth isn't always pleasant. And if I'm going to tell you the truth about the future, it's going to involve some difficulties for the believers. But I'm telling you that you're going to be hated in the future. You're going to be kicked out of synagogues. You're going to be, some of you killed, thinking people are offering sacrifice to God when they do it. Yet, I'm telling you this so that you can prepare. You saw the wife duck into the hall, you know, down the hall. You can prepare. You you know persecution's coming. You can prepare. You can get ready because you can rely on the Lord and you can turn to him to get help Uh, when that troubled time comes. And so Daniel here also is an example for that. So remember, Satan opposed the sacrificial system, then he, he opposes the sacrifice of Christ now. He opposed the temple building, then now he opposes the temple of God, the people of God, Today, he hated and opposed the truth and threw it to the ground, burning the first five books of the Bible, the Torah scrolls. Today, he wants our Bibles to not be front and center in our lives. He wants to make us have lower thoughts in the Bible, and he directly persecutes the saints, trampling them underfoot. And today, also, he wants to trample them underfoot as well. Now, we're going to move into the last verse of the chapter to see a few last takeaways. Let me just make a contrast here that one pastor pointed out in his sermon on this passage. So, Let's get in our time machine. We're in the 500s BC with Daniel. He's been talking about stuff that's going to happen in the future, the 160s BC. So Daniel's in the 1 fift, is in the fifth 500s. Excuse me, he's in the 500s. Let's go back in time to the 700s BC. So we're going to go back in time over 100 years, close to 200 years, to the time of Hezekiah, king of Judea. Listen to what happens. Hezekiah, remember he, he's going to die, and he pleads with the Lord to give him extra life. The Lord says, "Okay." You're not going to die. I'll give you 15 more years of life, and Hezekiah celebrates that. But during those extra 15 years, he did something really bad. He was a generally decent king, but he he made a mistake here. So some some people from Babylon came to see him. Verse. This is uh, Isaiah 39, verse. 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say, and from where do they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to meet me from a far country from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. So Hezekiah was foolish. Babylonian convoys come representing their kingdom, and Hezekiah shows off all of his gold and all his riches in his storehouse, which really allows the Babylonians to go back home and tell their king, Hey. One day we need to plunder Israel because they have a whole bunch of gold and goods in storage. And if we could plunder them, we could take all this stuff back to our place, which is exactly what they're going to now do. Um, Verse 5, then Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah the king, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. All that stuff you just showed off to the Babylonian convoys, uh, the Babylonian representatives, not convoys, the representatives, they're going to all come one day and take all that back to their palace. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, that is horrific, horrible news. In the 700s B.C., he is told in the future, this is going to end up being about 100 years later. In the early you know, 608 to 586, it's going to happen. So 100 years from now, your ancestors, your, your great-great-great-grandchildren and whatnot, they are going to be made eunuchs, carried off to Babylon. This place is going to be destroyed, and all your riches and goods are going to be taken back to Babylon. That's horrifying. Now, when Daniel hears that kind of news about future saints who are going to be horribly mistreated and persecuted, Daniel is overcome and lays sick in his bed for days. Daniel is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow for the future persecution of saints. How does Hezekiah respond when he finds out about the future persecution of his own ancestors, his own great-grandchildren? Here's what he says, verse 8 of Isaiah 39. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. The word of the Lord is good for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah is so selfish and self-centered that he goes, oh, you mean the Babylonians are not going to conquer us while I'm alive, while I'm king? You mean they're not going to plunder our storehouses while I'm alive, while I'm king? They're not going to turn our sons into eunuchs while I'm alive, while I'm king? Okay, that's going to happen 100 years from now, long after I'm dead. Okay, the word of the Lord is good. That's not a sincere statement about trusting the word of the Lord. That's, that's, That's a flippant way of saying, if it doesn't affect me, I don't really care. Well, when Daniel finds out about saints who are going to be persecuted, not just in another part of the world today, but in his in the distant future from where he is, he is deeply grieved by that. He's overcome and lays sick for days. How, how many of us are, are bothered by the persecution of Christians that we don't even know around the world? When we read a news story about a Christian who has been horrifically mistreated, when we think back to the uh, ISIS beheading of uh, some Coptic Christians, and I, I do realize that there are serious theological differences between us and Coptic Christians, generally speaking, so I'm not making light of that. But when you see Coptic Christians laying on the be- uh, sit- sitting on their knees on the beach getting beheaded with knives from, from members of ISIS dressed in black uh, attire, one of them in camo, the leader, do, do we have a sense of grief uh, over things like that? Well, Hezekiah, no, but Daniel, yes, we should be concerned about the welfare of other saints in the world. I think of the very end of the book of Hebrews when he speaks about other Christians in the world who are in prison for their faith, suffering greatly. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You're still in a physical body. You're still here on earth. Other Christians who are mistreated, he says, remember them. Those who are in prison, feel about it as if you were in prison with them. That's the way Daniel would have responded. And finally, we're told that after Daniel lay sick for a few days, what did he do? Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. What he did was he rose and he went about the king's business. I'm looking around to see if I have a commentary here. I don't. Think I've got it with me, but I can I can paraphrase what happened. Uh, one uh, commentator of the book of Daniel, Tripper Longman, I believe is the the name. He said back in 1994 there was this uh, Christian professor, I believe he was maybe he, he may have also had pastoral background. His name was Harold Camping. Now you may, if you Google real quick, you will you will you will probably remember who Harold Camping was. Uh, Harold Camping predicted the end of the world in the year 1994. In fact, I'm going to look it up. Uh, right now, uh, just to make sure I get this right. Harold Camping predicted, uh, predicted the world would end uh, in 1994, September of 1994. Spoiler alert, he was incorrect about that. And before that happened... Uh, September 1994, a few months before September of 1994, he debated, I believe, Tripper Longman III, the uh, Old Testament scholar. Tripper Longman was pushing back big time, saying we can never predict the time of Christ's second coming. That's craziness. And what uh, Tripper Longman said was there were multiple Christians that he knew who bought into Harold Camping's utter nonsense. Jesus said we will not ever know the day and the hour of his own return. Not even the angels in heaven know. He said not even he and his own humanity at the time that he said that knew the timing of his own return, but only the Father in heaven. But Harold Camping said he knew. And so Harold Camping uh, predicted this and made a big deal. A big buzz came about this. So there were some Christians who believed him. And one Christian, according to Triple Loman's recollection, one Christian said that he was going to take out credit card debt and not worry about repaying it because he only had about three months to live. And then Jesus would come back, and so it didn't matter if he racked up and accrued massive credit card debt. I'm not I'm not kidding here. Another person, his marriage was on the rocks a little bit. He, he needed to really work on his marriage with his wife, but he said, "I don't really, I don't think I'm going to worry about trying to uh, reconcile my relationship with my wife because." By the time I would even reconcile it, Jesus would have already come back in about a few months. So I'm just going to kind of let things go right now and we'll, we'll wait for the rapture and the return of Christ and whatever view of the end times that they had. We could, you can could see our views about the our view about the rapture in, in other contexts on our YouTube channel or on our uh somewhere else. But um it, it is interesting that uh, Harold Camping was wrong. Well, you think, well, Harold Camping, surely he he learned his lesson. Well, uh he actually uh predicted the end of the world uh a second time. Uh, Harold Camping predicted the world again while I was teaching Bible class. I still remember this. This, Was this 2011, I believe, May? Yeah, so uh, he alleged biblical, uh, there was biblical evidence pointing for the return of Christ on uh, the rapture, in his view, May 21st, 2011. And I actually remember this because I was teaching Bible classes when this became big. And I think someone even took out like a full-page ad in the USA Today advertising this. Uh, People were saying, okay, it's it's all over. Uh, Judgment is coming. And uh, it did not happen. Spoiler alert. It did not happen on May 21st, 2011. Uh, and then what he said was, well, uh, I actually got the uh, I got the numbers just barely wrong. And so he rescheduled it to maybe October 21st, 2011 or something like that. And uh, spoiler alert, once again, he, he got it wrong uh, again. So why do I bring all this up? Well, uh, we'd be so careful trying to predict specific things about the future end times that are not uh, explicit in Scripture. Harold Camping got way ahead of himself on that one. Uh, one of these people say he got out ahead of his skis on that one. Uh, he he, he out-kicked uh, his coverage, and they uh, did not know what he was talking about. Uh, however, uh, Harold Camping's teaching on the end times made people freak out, made people act irrationally. When Daniel got a legitimate teaching about future times, not the final end times in this text, but he got a vision about a future event, 350 years in the future, it, it greatly affected him. It, it grieved him. He, he was sick for days. But, but what did he do after all that? His eschatology did not make him paralyzed, did not make him live recklessly, did not make him accrue credit card debt, did not make him you know, be estranged from his wife. I know Daniel was probably, he may not have been married at all. But the point is, what happened? He got up and went about the king's business. Then I rose and went about the king's business. So, yes, we should think about the end times. Yes, we should think about some events that are now past, some events that are still future. Nothing wrong with that. We should study our Bibles. We should get to know them. We should try to be as accurate as we can. We should not overly analyze where we try to exactly figure out all the future things because no one knows the day or the hour. We should be very wary of that. But at the end of the day, our view of the end times should not make us act recklessly, should not make us act in a lazy way. Uh, If you go go look at 2 Thessalonians, uh, it just it, it makes me smile the the error. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't something to smile about at the time. I'm sure, but the error in Second Thessalonians does make me smile a little bit because uh, if you break the book down, it's just three chapters. If you break it down into an outline, chapter one is the return of Christ coming in flaming fire with his angels to give relief to his saints. Chapter two is Antichrist man of lawlessness is going to come first, then a great rebellion, and then a falling away, an apostasy, and then the return of Christ where he will judge the Antichrist figure and save his people. And then chapter 3, a warning against laziness. I'm not making this up. So what's going on? Chapter 1, dramatic picture of Christ's return. Chapter 2, dramatic picture of the man of lawlessness and the return of Christ. Chapter 3, don't quit your day job. That is literally what it says here. Uh, Paul says in chapter 3, we command you, in the name uh, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tra- tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not be- it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to follow. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command: If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we, bear, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Well, what's going on there? It seems as though some people had a view of the end times that was making them think that they didn't have to earn their own living. They're just going to mooch off everybody else until Jesus gets back. So why don't? Why would I go to work? That seems like a waste of time when Jesus is about to come back. And so their eschatology, which is what chapters one and two are all about, Paul's correcting their eschatology in chapter two, especially. Then it leads to chapter three. Don't let your eschatology make you act irresponsibly. Don't quit your day job. Don't don't be a busybody. Don't mooch off other people. If a man will not work, let him not eat. Uh, let a person work quietly and earn his own living. And so Daniel hears these astonishing visions. They affect him emotionally as they should. But he then gets out of bed gets onto his feet. Then I rose and went about the king's business. We also need to get up and do the next right thing, but we don't need to be so caught up in these visions of grandeur of the future that they paralyze us. In fact, if our views of the future paralyze us, we probably have mistaken views about the future and where all this is heading. All right, well, Daniel 8 covers the Medo-Persian Empire, the ram, and the Greek Empire leading to Antiochus IV, which is the, uh, the goat Chapters 10, 11, and 12 really zoom in on those empires and speak even more about all that led up to King Antiochus IV and then the final uh, end time, the true end of the world in Daniel 12 and the resurrection. So what happens in Daniel 9? we got this vision of the uh, of, of Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 10, 11, 12 zooms in again on what Daniel 8 talks about. What is Daniel 9? What we're getting the week after Easter. Daniel 9 is going to be Daniel's prayer of repentance on behalf of all the people of God for their many sins that led them into exile. And he gets more information about what the future will look like with Daniel's 70 weeks. Perhaps, certainly, the most debated, disputed, challenging section of all the book of Daniel is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 27. Lord willing, we'll get to that uh, a few weeks from now. So, I'm going to pray and then we are done. For the three of you who got to the end of this thing, thank you for watching. And I hope it was in some way uh, useful, edifying. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for how intriguing and mysterious parts of it are, for how challenging parts of it are. Help us not uh, to grow weary in the study of these books. Help us to dive into them, to understand them as best we can, to be humble about some of our conclusions and to not allow our views to incapacitate or paralyze us or make us lazy. Uh, Help us not to be like the Harold Camping followers in that regard. Uh, Help us instead to grieve over uh, difficulties Christians undergo in the world, to feel some pain with them as if in prison with them, and then help us to get up and go about the king's business. Help us to get out of our beds and to get on our feet and to go about the work of every day, doing the dishes, uh, doing the laundry, uh, changing the diapers, going to school, going to work, going to the office, going to the hospital and doing our work and honoring you and all that you have for us and doing the next right thing. Uh, Please forgive us when we fail. Give us strength to do what is right and give us a hunger and thirst for you. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.